we've been in a collection of teachings and conversations about uh, being magnified. Everybody that I'm talking to last week in their at group, it's our small group ministry. We meet in homes a couple of times a month and we then serve together in the community. We call it our at group. Our at groups, it has a circle, everything with a circle we kind of drawn to because of our, our logo, but it's at someone's house at a particular time and it's kind of a, a gathering at, and, of sorts at, in homes. And it, um, it, it is an important step in our journey. We spoke about that last week. What we do is we take the conversations that were the talks that we're having on Sunday morning and then take those into our home and it gives people a chance to respond and not just be recipients, but to be part of this conversation. And everybody I've talked to last week just had an incredible week of conversations. And I think we're hitting a nerve here, a nerve that we can relate to. Last week we spoke about being magnified on the inner self by drawing into community and not just stopping at this celebration service, the big circle as we call it on Sunday morning, that the deeper that you go into community, the more difficult it gets, much like being in the mosh pit of a rock concert, as I uh, now uh, made the uh, illustration last week. If you've ever been in a mosh pit, I was sharing that I have my first, perhaps maybe last time I'll ever do a mosh pit. Um, it, it is, uh, it's not easy. But Jesus calls us to deeper relationships. He calls us to not just stay at the peripheral, but to get deeper in and closer to one another. We had two guys, uh, Matt Nichols, Rich Fontaine, come up. They have been going through a discipleship process, a person-to-person track we call iGod. We had many people respond to that this week, say, man, I can tell we're hitting a nerve when people say, man, I'd like to be a part of that. I need that. Um, we had people in our own at group that I attend. I don't lead the at group. It's awesome. I get to participate. And uh, who just opened up and said, man, I, th- when I was 20, if I would have had one person, just that one person that would have come to me and said, man, I, it sounds, feels like you're coming off the runway it would have been life-changing. I think many people are that way. I had someone that said, you know, I didn't have a small circle relationship, so I paid for a therapist for 10 years. It's how hungry people are to have someone just to talk to. I went met with somebody this, this week late at night, found a burger place, and we went in. No solutions. They just needed to get it out. And I don't like quick and easy solutions. Well, here's what you got to do and blah, 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 and wave a wand and wave the Bible and everything's fixed. Life is not that way. I didn't offer any solutions. But I got an email from him and I got a Facebook message from his wife. Thank you for letting us come into your small circle. It makes a difference. It is It is the depth of our relationships that make a difference and magnify the things that come out. I believe that every circle, including this one, this large circle, is very, very key. But there's a different dynamic when you you move from here to 12 to 14 people in your living room and when you move from there to a burger joint where it's just you and another person sitting across the table. And it's exactly what Jesus did. He knew what he was talking about. 
We first started these conversations by noticing that there are things in our life that we normally would not pick up on unless they are magnified. And so therefore, God gives to us these tools of magnification like we have in our natural lives, like a magnifying glass, microscopes, um, uh, uh, telescopes, any kind of scope uh, that, that uh, magnifies things that you can't see with the naked eye, the natural eye. And so as we began, we looked at the words of God and how they illuminate our lives and make things show up that we normally wouldn't see. The following week, we, we uh, learned about the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and how it's the kind of the virus protection that God instills and fuses from the inside and brings to our attention those things that he wants us to be sensitive to. And then last week, of course, we talked about the outer things, community, other people, and how that magnifies in our life. We're going to look at another outside magnification tool this week, and it is our actions. It is no doubt that we live in a world, in a culture, in an operating system that is cause and effect. If you think about this morning, just your personal life this morning, there have been so many things, I'm guessing, that you haven't even given much thought to that are cause and effect. An alarm clock went off. It caused you to wake up. The effect was you're grouchy. I mean, you're out of bed or you're, you didn't have coffee, and that's an effect. It, was a, you know, it caused you to not be completely awake or you did have your coffee. You stuck your key in your ignition. You turned it as a, as a cause, and the, the outcome of that was your car started, and the effect was that you were able to get here. We flipped the lights on so that you have lights. The effect, as you can see, so you don't bump in the chairs. Cause and effect is happening throughout everybody's daily life. In our own personal spiritual life, inner um, activity comes out with symptoms. It's true in the physical world as well. There are things that happen if you've got a runny nose. That's not the real problem. There's something that's causing the runny nose. Maybe there are, there are allergies. Maybe it's a cold. There's something inside that's not the symptom. It's a cause, and the effect is that you've got a runny nose. Make sense? So I don't know if you heard on the news this week, it was on international news about this guy in China who was having these incredible headaches. Anybody see this story? Anybody? Yes. Anybody watch the news? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, so he was having these incredible headaches. And, and then he started, and, and this was going on for like three or four years. And then he started bleeding from the mouth. And they said, man, he, finally he said, I've got to go and check myself into the hospital and see what the cause of this effect is. It was so amazing that I thought I'd bring it to you this morning. Here's the newscast on this. This is an x-ray of Chinese patient, Mr. Ni's head. Lodged inside is a 10-inch blade that's been stuck for four years. He's suffered from a bleeding mouth, frequent headaches, and found it difficult to swallow food, occasionally speaking gibberish as a side effect. But he'd been dealing with the mystery pain all by himself. I've been using injections to kill the pain for the past four years. Finally, the unrelenting misery and constant self-medication has been enough to force Mr. Ni to pay a visit to the stomatology department in Yuji City's People's Hospital. 
But the injury has baffled Deputy Director of the Department, Zhu Wen. We checked his mouth, but no wound or scar has been found. It is very strange as to how the blade got into his head. It turned out that Mr. Ni had been stabbed in a fight with a robber four years ago. He's lucky to be alive, with the artery to the brain and important nerves narrowly missed. He's now recovering in hospital, but already on the mend. I feel better now the blade has been taken out. <laughs> I would guess you do. <laughs> I know when I've had a blade in my head, it hurts. <laughs> is that amazing? And as amazing as that is, there are sometimes in our spiritual lives, we have something there that's like, man, the, the effect of this thing is not, there's something outside that I can tell is not exactly right. And God would say, well, you got a blade somewhere. And it just seems so obvious to someone that can see x-ray vision. These past couple weeks at the McCoy Ranch have been weeks of breakdown. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, first of all, um, our, we had a plumbing breakdown. Our toilet shut down. We were out without a toilet for about a week. Then my wife comes and says, you know what? The microwave is now broken down. I'm like, awesome. Then somebody called me from the church and said, you know, the computer, the Mac computer just crashed. I'm like, awesome. We're having this. How's your week? Super. Um, and then we took our car in for an oil change and we were informed that the brakes were now gone, not even close. To, they were gone. And so, you know, the $20 oil change, you know, $500 later, that's incredible. And then this past week, we, we um, went out into the garage, and we, the little river is coming into the garage, and, and the hot water heater is um, busted. So we had to call in somebody to fix the hot water heater. My wife last night said, hey, you know the top of the panini grill is, I don't even want to hear it, dude. <laughs> Keep all your breakdowns to yourself. I am done with breakdowns. So this plumber comes out. To, it was really amazing because the thing hadn't busted completely. There was just about a gallon of water on the floor. And this guy comes out, and he says, here, let me, let me check it out. The bi big guy, and he, you know, hot water heater, and he, and he hugs my heater like this. I'm like, I'll be inside. And, and he begins to rub his hands up and down the heater like, I'll call someone else now. This is like, you're strange, yeah. Do you have a blade in your head? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, and so he's filling this, this hot water heater, and, he go, and he's just filling it up and down, and then he's like really quiet, like caressing this thing. I'm like, this guy <laughs> is in love with his work. That's all I'm saying. And he, he's, and he's like, what? He's like, oh, your leak is right here. I'm like, really? And he said, yeah, feel it, feel it. He said, it's hotter at this spot. And I felt it. I didn't feel a difference at all. But I said, I feel it. God just wanted to get inside. You know, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm like, so at any rate, he, he's feeling this thing. And sure enough, this guy feeling the outside of this metal tank could tell where the problem was on the inside. Jesus said, kind of gave us this illustration in Luke chapter 12 and 24. He said this, For where your treasure is, can I add on the outside, that's where your heart will be also on the inside. 
He's saying, now I know this passage when he's talking is in the context of talking about money, but I think Jesus is broader, talking broader than that, meaning that the outside actions and the outside muscle, the outside habits, the patterns of what we become involved in are directly connected to where the heart is. And Jesus said, just look at the symptoms and you'll be able to tell the cause. You look at the effect and you'll see the cause. You'll be able to look at what's happening when you look at this. And he's not just talking about one simple thing. It's our actions that magnify what is on the inside. Our exterior actions magnify our interior heart, I believe that Jesus is saying. And it's not that Jesus is concerned that we're just busy. Because we can, we can do a lot of stuff, even in relationships, like I, I'll just busy myself. Sometimes I've heard husbands many times saying, you know, the reason I'm outside the home so much is I'm doing it for the family. And when the wife would say, but I want you, I want your heart, I want your presence, I want... I'm not just concerned that we have a nice home and the bills are paid and, 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 and the kids have clothes and all that. I want you. And Jesus would be saying the same thing. I'm not just interested that you're just busy yourself, but what that, those actions are are important. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus puts it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like worshiping and praising will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now watch. Many will say to me that day, man, we were in the action, God. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not uh, in your name drive out demons? And in your name didn't we perform many miracles? I mean, these things are amazing things. No one in this passage is saying, man, don't you remember me setting up tables? Don't you remember me bringing the chicken to the potluck, Jesus? I mean, these are way high things prophecy and miracles and, and, and uh, great uh, uh, action. And even though they were involved in all this action, Jesus is hugging our soul and finding, is this really what it's all about? So today we're going to examine our, our actions. Not that we should be active, we should be. But examine our actions and let Jesus perhaps lay his hand on the pulse of who we are on the interior. I want to put forth to you a few flavors of actions. I've begun all these with words that start with A, just so sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's easy to remember. I believe that Jesus sometimes would ask us this question in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do, you do, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you have kids, we have a six and a seven-year-old, you'll know that cleaning the room is often one of the greatest challenges and arm wrestling matches that you, we have, and unless you have just a super neat child. It is always for us something, you know, go clean your room, go clean your room. Even when it's clean, it's just a good thing to say. Go clean your room. Well, it's clean. Yeah, go clean anyway, you know, whatever. But they, they go in the clean room. And then you go in and somehow they're watching Scooby-Doo. And you say, no, wait a minute. Why? 
you know, you're trying to get to, was I not clear? Um, do you not care? Do you not understand the instructions? Have you not read the manual, how to clean your room? And please, Dad, you know, I mean, you know, what, where is the breakdown? And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Why, 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 why? Let me know. And so today, I want to look, look at why it is that we sometimes have these kind of actions where we get off track or maybe there's a leak in our tank or there's a blade in our soul, so to speak. The first one is absent. The first thing I believe that would cause our minds to think of is perhaps there's no activity for God. I've had chapters in my life where I wasn't moved by compassion of anything. I didn't want to serve. I didn't want to help. There was nothing. I didn't want to give. Nothing. And I think those are moments in your life that we put ourselves under the spiritual x-ray of God and say, magnify why that is. And these, these areas, by the way, I want to say, are not guilt-causing areas because I don't like that style. I don't like that approach. But they're just realistic checkpoints so that if you find yourself in one of these moments or chapters or you're on a track and you say, you know, well, there is, actually there isn't any action in my life, then perhaps it's time to put yourself in an x-ray and just ask why. Let me, let me try to help with that. The word absent, and we're going to look at each one of these words and where they come from. I, I love etymology because it's kind of cool to see where words come from. The word absent comes from a word called, um, that the, originally the, the root of is abesse, which means away from, A-B, a, an essay means uh, from being or existing, living. When we're, when we're away, when we're absent from something, it's like we're away from the life of it. If your husband or wife says to you, I feel like you're absent here, meaning I feel like you're away from the life of this relationship. James, who is the straight shooter of the New Testament, one of the most straight shooters of the New Testament, writes in his letter, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, it's away from the life. It is away from the living thing that's in us. In other words, it's our faith should be alive. Have you ever noticed that you can't kill something that's already dead? This week, our six-year-old came in and said, hey, dad, I found a dead fly in the garage. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I was working on something. That's cool. What'd you do? I killed it. I'm like, okay, that makes perfect sense. You killed the dead fly. I'm like, so what, you know, give me the rundown. Well, I went in, I saw a dead fly it was laying on the ground and I stomped it. Awesome. Did you clean it up? No, didn't think so. Yeah, uh, that would be a dead job. Why kill something that's dead? And I think the point here is that faith is alive. When we're not talking about an intellectual agreement in religion here, when we give our hearts to Christ, Christ becomes alive in us, and the Holy Spirit is alive in us, and the Word of God becomes alive in us. And if there's no actions, there's nothing on the outside, there's a t this is a time where we have to look back and say, you know what? Perhaps my faith and my life has come to a place that it's away from being alive. 
At least for me, those are the moments where something that has been alive is no longer alive. James is talking to people who've experienced life in the faith. He's not talking to people who have never had faith before. He's saying, examine your faith. Perhaps it's become ab -esse, absent with away from life. That's why Paul, I believe, wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he says this, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, and I think that's what it takes. Remember growing up as a kid when you didn't eat your dinner and your parents said, you know, they're starving children in China, and they're, you know, I've become one of those. When my kids don't want to clean their room, I remind them and show them pictures of children who have no carpet, who have no bed, who have no roof, whose toy, whose prized toy would be a bottle cap. And I remind them of the life that they have. Because I think that's the important thing of reviving life. Like, wow, that's right. This is the king of the universe that lives in me. I've got to fan that back in the flame. Whoo, what am I doing? You feel it? Winston Churchill said this, I never worry about action, but only about inaction. And I think as a Christian, we can apply that to our life. There are times I don't know what I'm doing. I'll be honest with you. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that really consoling as your leader? I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. Some people pray and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and I feel like God's saying, just go do something, man. And so there are times where I'm going into something, I'm like, God, you know, shut it down or keep it open, but I'm going, okay? If you don't want me to do it, then put a wall there, but at least I'm going. I'm going to do something. And I think God would be, oh, good, man, at least that's better than action, inaction. Don't worry about being active. Be worried if your faith has become absent away from life and there's inaction. The second word I want to throw out to you, this, the thought, is an offensive word, apathy. It's not a word that anyone wants to be called. Hey, how was your week? Super. How about you, you, you apathetic person? I mean, you know, who, who wants to hear that, right? But if you look a little deeper at this word, there's some really incredible meaning. You know, apathy means that we've just kind of lost the zip. We're going to do it. You know, when, I, when the kids clean the room, not, no kidding. I'm like, go ahead and clean the room. And it's like, you know, they take something like this and they just start dragging it across the floor, you know. Can you move that chair? Yeah, whatever. And they're like, okay. You know, you can tell there's an attitude there. You know, my dad used to say, probably like yours, dad, we're going to rake these leaves and you're going to smile when we're raking them. You know, so we're like. <laughs> really worked. In music, we have um, in modern music, you know, like modern art that's kind of crazy and abstract and whatnot, we, we call, we have, it's called a, a, atonal, atonality, meaning there's no tonal center. There's no C major chord, no G major chord. It's just kind of crazy without any, it's absent of tone. That, and so when you look at apathy, it comes from apathos, which means without pathos, which means suffering, cost, loss. You see, apathy 
starts to, to break into our lives and our actions and they become kind of drag the chair across the room because there's going to be a loss here. We can't watch the TV show. We can't watch the cartoons. There's going to be something that's going to cost us and therefore we say, I'm going to just do it kind of halfway because I don't want the cost to be too high. I... Um, was reading and studying the book of Malachi. It's a short little book at the end of the New Testament. I'm considering making that our next set of conversations. It's a tough book. In Malachi, this teacher and spokesman for God, he goes out and surveys what's going on. And what's going on is that long, long ago, God had asked for his people. Back then, they had a sacrificial system where they brought in animals and the and God just, he, he never said, even from the very beginning, if you look at the story of Cain and Abel, he said, I want your best. I want to know that you know that I'm number one. And I want you, when you bring me a cow, when you bring me a lamb, when you bring me a goat, when you bring me a pigeon, I don't want you to bring number two or number 10. I want it to be the very top of the line product offering. So what these guys were doing, they'd go out and they were looking around their flock and they were like, well, there's one that's leaning up against the wall ready to kill over. And they would have had to shoot that one anyway. They couldn't have eaten it. They couldn't have used it. It was diseased. It was lame. It had a broken leg. Something was wrong. It had a knife in the skull or something was wrong with the sheep. So what they do is they would say, well, you know what? that one is a loss anyway. I'm going to take that one a pathos without cost and offer that and say, see God, here it is. And my guess is they sang a song all to Jesus with their lame lamb. And Malachi comes on the scene and he says this, God says this through Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. When you bring me blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Are you guys not getting that? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, are you catching that that's not right? Try offering them to your boss, to your governor, to your teacher, whoever's over you. Would he or she be pleased with that? Would he or she accept you, says the Lord Almighty? I mean, it's just without cost. Boys, go clean your room. So here's what happens. They're watching TV, and they're dusting. You see, it would cost them to cut the TV off and go clean the room. But see, I'm getting two things done at once. I'm dusting but I'm enjoying, dusting and enjoying. The problem is this is a very clean spot. <laughs> but there's the rest of the room. <laughs> and God is saying, come on. It will cost something to follow me. And Jesus says it over and over and over and over, but somehow we need occasionally an x-ray to say, come on. It's going to cost something. Your time, your skill set, your bank account, all those things that we already know. Nobody has to say that, but it's going to cost you 
something. David says it like this. He was ready to, to worship at a place, and the, the guy was saying, no, no charge. And, and David says this in, in 2 Samuel 24. He says, no, I, I love this word, insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. We have to insist. On Malachi chapter 1, Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek, he makes this comment. He, he brings these thoughts to it. He says, I wonder what would happen to every church on the planet if every pastor, every staff member, every volunteer, every leader, every servant in children's and youth ministry would say, you don't have to worry about me because I'm committed to giving my best lamb every single day. I'm going to live in vital union with God, you know, not being absent. And I'm going to consistently render my most excellent offering. The standard that I have established is higher than any of you could possibly set for me. Because my mind is set on not being apathos without sacrifice. I'm going to give the sacrifice. Challenging word. Third word, artificial. (laughs) The word artificial is pertaining to art. If you look at the first three words, A-R-T, of or belonging to art. Art is is not a real thing. I can draw a picture or paint a picture of a hammer, but I can't drive nails with that picture. A picture, a painting, as beautiful as it may be, of the ocean is wonderful. I have one hanging in my uh, hallway where my mom actually painted this beautiful picture of the ocean. I cannot jump in my swim trunks and go swim in that painting, right? That's just, that's, that's logic. There are actions that can actually be like a painting, art official. In other words, kind of a semblance of working, and yet there's something that's not genuine, authentic about it. Um, I saw this, I got this email this week from this uh, furniture place. I blocked out the name to protect the guilty. And so I saw this up at the banner, 50% off any item in the store. I'm like, that's awesome. I could really, um, I'm, uh, you know, our dining room table is uh, getting ready to break down. Thank God it didn't break down this week. <laughs> Legs are really wobbly. You know, kids have used it for a million years. And so I called the store, I went online, and I found this table online for 250 bucks. So I'm thinking 50% off any item in the store. I'm getting a dining room table for a hundred and a quarter. Super deal, right? Because I've been looking on Craigslist. That's like just about as good as Craigslist. So I call the guy up. I say, hey, I got this email in the mail. And it's like 50% off any item. And I'm like, that's really cool. And uh, here's a SKU number of one I found. And I wanted to see if you have it in stock. And so here's a SKU number, 486. He looks it up and there's silence. He was like, well, um, uh, well, this is not enough. I'm like, what do you mean it's not enough? He goes, well, didn't you read the line underneath the 50%? See that little teeny line? It reads like this. When you spend $4,999.99. Yeah, that's, you see under there that little white lettering? That's what that said. It needed a little magnification, would you say? Would you agree? <laughs> it's kind of this sense of uh, man, look at how, what I'm doing. Let me advertise this thing. But you kind of have to look at the fine print of what is happening. The first king of Israel, his name was Saul. 
And Saul was told as a warrior, I want you to go into this land and we've got to destroy everything. And God had very good reason why he does things. Many of these animals were diseased. Many of them were not fit. Uh, there were, there were, he, he said, we got to cleanse the land. What happened, though, was Saul went in and he said, I got a better idea. And I'm going to be real active. But I'm not going to do it exactly the way God do it. I'm going to kind of do a depiction of what God wanted. I'm going to do like a masterpiece, an art. It's going to look really cool. I'm going to do this, this beautiful framed-in artwork of what God asked. But it's not going to be the real thing, but it is going to be a beautiful replication of, of God's command. Ever been there? Boy, I have. I know, God, you're telling me to do this. i got a slightly different plan, but I am going to be really active in doing it. And so Saul goes in, and he gets greedy. And he starts to see, wow, you know what? Now that's a good cow. I'm not sure why anyone would kill that cow because that's a great cow. And there's some sheep. Man, let's just keep the good stuff for ourselves. And so God caught wind of it, as God does. And he sent Samuel, the spokesman for God, to address Saul. And here's how the conversation goes in 1 Samuel 15. Then the word came to the spokesman, Samuel. I'm grieved said God, that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has painted a depiction of my instructions. He's done an, an artifice. <clears throat> He's not carried out my instructions. Saul, Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul's gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached Saul, now here it is, Saul said, God bless you. Everything is going awesome. The Lord bless you. And uh, he says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. See how active I am. See how busy I am. And Samuel says, um, what's that background noise? What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the mmm of cattle that I hear. Because that was the real deal that God asked us to do. We have to be careful that, that when we get an, an understanding of what God wants, I know that we need community, but I think I'll create my own thing. When, when God asks us, I've had people say it to me, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm still thinking about it. I'm still painting my own image. The final one is the opposite of this. And this is exactly where God wants us to be. Now, if I believe in honesty, I have been at each of these three chapters at one point of my life and probably at one point last week. There are times that we just have to do some inspection. The final word is authentic. Authentic, And the word means, ought means self like auto, and hentes means doer. We become, we become doing that, uh, uh, an action that is true to the self that we have come to be. And as Christians, who we have come to be is found in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. Why? 
Why, God, were we created in Christ Jesus? We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has already prepared for us to do in advance. In other words, God is already out there, and when I'm doing it and I'm in gear with what he's doing, I'm being authentic. I'm being true to the self that he's created in me. Does that make sense? That's a little heavy. You have to think about that. In other words, God in me, now when I'm in working and doing in in relationship to God in me, then things are authentic. They're real. They're to the core. I looked at a pair of eyeglasses um, recently, and, and no joke, the guy says, these are authentic plastic. I'm like, thanks anyway. I don't know. What is authentic plastic? I don't know what authentic plastic is. He was like, see, you know, and he showed me this little sample. He said, see, there's no cracks or something. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Do you know a guy that hugs, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's happening to our world, you know? <laughs> what happens on the inside will affect what happens on the outside. Our actions will not be divorced from whether or not our faith is alive. Our actions will show whether or not we have pathos, the willingness to suffer and lose and pay a cost or not. If it will be minus pathos. Our actions will show whether we're really working in Christ or we're only doing a photo. Some of you may know the story of David Livingston, but I found a little film piece by that, that we're going to close with today. And it's being told by one of the, uh, as what I consider one of the premier preachers and teachers in America. His name is Ravi Zacharias. He's from India. You have to listen a little closely because of his, his um, accent. But instead of me telling this story, just the way that they, they did this, they put a little film together. I just want you to to see this, experience this for three or four minutes. And as you do, I'm, I'm asking you to peer into the heart of a man whose faith was alive, who was not willing to let apathy take a, a seat in his heart, who was not painting a picture of a Jesus that was just a photocopy, but he became Christ by his actions. So let's take a look. Ravi Zacharias, he's the man in the white hair you'll see. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He would sit on his father's knee and his father would tell him stories of missionary, medical missionaries and David's Livingston's heart would start pounding with a sense of call. He got on his knees one day and he said this, Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And he said, through it all came the words of God to me. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. He went into Africa, as you know, and because of sickness that began to maul his family, he had to send his wife back home. Do you know when was the next time he saw his wife Mary after that initial parting? Five years. When I arrived here, I was going straight from here to Orlando, Florida, 
Then when I found out I'd be finishing up this morning, juggled my tickets here and there, paid a little bit extra more to get back just to overnight with my family again. For me, seven days looms so large. Five years is outlandish. I am not justifying it. I'm not condemning it. I'm just stating it as it was. He didn't see his wife for five years. The next time he saw her, he was a different looking man. His face had been burnt to a crisp and leather by the African sun. He had been attacked by a lion that had torn one shoulder apart. He'd walked into the branch of a tree that had partially blinded one eye and marred his face. And as he hobbled back to his house, he found out that only a few days before they had buried his father and the wound began to grow in Livingston's heart. But one day he said to his wife, he said, honey, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning within my heart. I have to go back. And he went and he was not going to see them for some time till finally after a long while when Mary joined him the very day she set foot on African soil again she contracted an aura a disease that her body was not able to face up to and a few days after that he was burying her as he stood by her grave somebody heard him weeping loudly and crying out my Jesus my king my life my all I again consecrate my life to thee I shall place no value in anything I possess or in anything I do except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service. He said, through it all came the words of God to me, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. He packed his bags and went back to his hometown village of Ujiji. When he arrived there, he found somebody who played a dirty joke on him, stealing all his medication. That was his only help from a body that was racked with pain. And unable to find any medication, he buckled down on his knees and he cried out to God, You promised you'd be with me always to the end of the age. I need that medicine. Some time went by, he saw a pair of feet walking towards him. He lifted his countenance and for the first time in a long while, he was seeing this stranger, a white face for the first time in a long while. He said, Who are you, sir? He said, My name is Henry M. Stanley. I have been commissioned by the papers to come and do a story on your life. Mr. Livingston, I want you to know two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Don't try to convert me. Number two, I have some medication for you that somebody has sent. He said, give me the medication. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth became a Christian and wrote the two-volume biography entitled Livingston of Africa by Henry M. Stanley. Time began to go by, they'd carry him on stretcher from village to village till his body was feverish, <clears throat> trembling with the temperature. One day he told his two national brothers, take me back to my home, I'm very, very ill. He brought him back to his little place there and just about spilled him over into his cot till he says, no, help me onto my knees. He got onto his knees and he started to pray and the atmosphere being so sacred that his brothers left the room to leave him alone with God. Somebody came running and said, I want to see Mr. Livingston for a moment. They said, wait, he's praying. Waited several minutes, looked inside, still on his knees. A long time elapsed, looked inside, still on his knees. Looked even beyond that, he was still on his knees. They walked over out of concern for his well-being, grabbed him by the shoulder, said, Buana, Buana. Livingston fell over, fell over, fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived in the presence of his Lord. As inspiring as that is, sometimes it's overwhelming and a bit daunting. 
Like, man, I don't know that I could ever do that. But God asks us in our own world, in our own square, in our own small galaxy, to fan into flame our faith, to make sure that it's alive, to veer away from any sense of <clears throat> being afraid of cost. The greatest moments in my journey is where I'm like, I know this is going to cost me. I'm going to do it anyway. To completely veer away from depicting, replicating something that God calls us to be real and to be true to the Christ in us, to be authentic down to the core of who we are. It will affect your actions and it will magnify what's in it. I leave you with this verse from John 13. Jesus said, I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. You should do it, act on it, that your action should be like mine. I tell you the truth that no servant is greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for challenging us today. Forgive us for the times that it has been apparent to you who need no x-ray of our soul. But as you have come close and hugged us and, and felt the spots of weakness, spots where we're, we're weak, spots where there are weapons in our soul, God. Places, God, where we've allowed our faith to be away from life. God, fan into, to help us fan into flame. That's the challenge, God. You're willing to fan any day, God, but help us to fan into flame the life of our faith. Forgive us, God, for the times where we have been hard to say, but apathetic, where we've drug our actions around, not with joy, but with obligation, God, where we've offered something less than the best. Oh, God, forgive us for those times. We could just hover right there. We live in a culture of the best, and sometimes, God, we offer to you the leftover lambs. Can we just say in our heart to you, Lord, sorry about that. Sorry for cutting corners, for shortcuts, for leftovers. Sorry for giving you things that we were planning to throw out anyway. God, you're worthy of the best lamb that we have. You're worthy of the best lamb that we have. God, forgive us the times where we're super active and we're only painting a picture, but not the reality, not the real thing, where we've painted another version of what you've wanted. Help us, God, to be authentic to the core and realize that you are living in us so that we'll be to the core true so that our actions will match who you are in us, God, authentic. 
And Father, as Jesus said, you've given to us knowledge. And now that we know these things, we will be blessed if we do them. There's sometimes, God, we just need to turn down the music. There's sometimes, God, we just need to take a pause and do the things you've called us to do. So, Father, we, we praise you, God, and bless your name for magnifying these things in our life. We ask these things and tell you these things and commit our th- these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.